The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, well, who are the primary voters? In presidential elections, which is the big kind of political uh, festival, you know, where you have the height of participation, only a quarter or a third of Democrats and Republicans turn out and vote in uh, primaries. And when the Tea Party won, you know, races in the, in the 2010 election, you know, many of those races had turnouts of around 12 or 15 percent of Republicans. When AOC won her nomination against a very well-established Democrat who was rising the power structure, some thought would be you know, a successor to Nancy Pelosi, turnout among Democrats is 12%. So, you know, is this, are these primary voters, you know, representing America? I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 15th, 2022. American political life is defined by what can seem like a paradox. Our society is incredibly politically polarized, but our parties are as weak as they've ever been. How else could a reality TV star have so quickly and completely taken control of one of our major political parties? For Larry Jacobs, a political scientist and one of my colleagues at the University of Minnesota, the weakness of our parties is a major threat to American democracy. But as he explains in his new book, Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History, the roots of this weakness go back all the way to the earliest years of the United States and today manifest in our broken system of presidential primaries. I spoke with Larry about his new book, his diagnosis of what ails American politics, and what, if anything, can be done to fix it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 15th. Larry Jacobs on America's broken political process. Let's start with an overview of the argument of the book. Why is democracy under fire, and what is it under fire from? There's been so much attention to Donald Trump, his personality, the behavior and the conduct and the actions of President Donald Trump in office. Lots been written about it. A lot of it is excellent. My approach is to say, how did we end up with Donald Trump? And the puzzle here is that starting in 2015, when Trump announced he was a candidate for president, there was a near uniform reaction among Republican leaders that Donald Trump was not fit for office. And many of the grounds for the criticism of candidate Trump are familiar today. He didn't follow the law. And there's a long set of of practices by Donald Trump in business that confirms that. He demonstrated a disdain for the Constitution and basic procedures of law and our democratic process. So it was clear beginning in 2015 as a candidate that Donald Trump was someone who could well turn into a demagogue who would defy our constitution and laws and democratic practices. He was nominated nonetheless. And so the core question is, how could it be that a candidate opposed so so uniformly within his own party was still nominated? And that led me on to a journey of looking at our political party nomination process, looking at the nature of our democracy. And I started really with the early 1970s when the direct primary for presidential elections was adopted uh, in earnest, ended up going back to the progressive era a century ago, uh, kind of tracing where that began. And I realized, no, the roots are much deeper. And so I ended up in the 1700s looking at this nascent a form of democracy that was taking shape and the battles over the form of democracy. The centerpiece of my argument is we need to spend a lot more attention 
to the rules and procedures of representative democracy in America and how they were so clearly circumvented uh, with the nomination and eventually the election of Donald Trump in 2016. So one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is that you take Donald Trump and you situate that at the end of this long historical story. And so I want to spend some time on that historical story. The first half of the book is this very interesting history of what at least I thought of as the kind of institutional background of American democracy. And you frame it as a story of this continuous push and pull between, on the one hand, demands for more citizen participation, and on the other hand, the desire of political parties or the political establishment, as it were, to have more top-down control. And, and I'd like you to describe, if you will, in particular, how this plays out at the beginning of the country with, with people like Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, because I think in some very important ways that sets the template for kind of everything that happens going forward and today in American politics. If you go back to the 1700s, historians of the colonial period talk about the era of the gentry, uh, because it was largely an aristocratic gentry uh, ruling power elite that controlled things. And there was very little participation, even among the white males who were able to participate. It was you know, just gentry rule. Then you have the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and it's an extraordinary document in its time. It talks about all men being created equal, and meaning all white men being created equal. There were property restrictions, but it was remarkable for that time that that statement would be made, that rights were unalienable. In other words, they were you know, these basic uh, features, essential features of the human being, and that there was consent of the government. And for farmers and laborers, they kind of shook their head. <laughs> what? We have these rights? And they took it seriously. And so you see this really remarkable moment of democratic outpouring between the mid-1770s and into the 1780s. You see farmers and laborers running for office in state legislatures winning because of a very broad coalition in their communities. And once they were in office, those communities came forward with literally instructions. So the idea that, that you would elect someone who would exercise their own independent judgment, not accepted. Here is what you're going to do, and here are your instructions. And one of the results of that was a very progressive economic platform. And this was a period, particularly after the, the Revolutionary War, when the country was in a significant economic downturn. And at that time, there were taxes that were being put on farmers and laborers. They couldn't afford it. So this progressive agenda said, we're going to lower or eliminate the taxes. We're going to print a lot of money to devalue debt. Um, and we're going to provide other economic assistance to um, folks who were on the edge. Um, we're going to try to stop the foreclosure of farms. Now, people like Madison, they freaked out. They saw this as the tyranny of the majority, as Jefferson put it. And they got to work quietly. And they pulled a fast one on the state legislatures in getting authorization for a constitutional convention, which the state legislators thought would be kind of technical fixes, uh, addressing some issues. They had no idea it was going to be a revolution. Revolution was to establish a new national government and for that national government to take control over the core economic functions of the country, including printing money, uh, which had been something that the states, in the view of Madison, that they were abusing that right. And you see this tension at this moment between the effort of Madison and Jefferson and others to establish national institutions and with the authority of the supreme authority of the land. On the other hand, you had this this uh, clearly articulated philosophy of political equality, again, among white men, that, that sets up this clash that we see playing out again and again. Washington serves in office for two terms. Washington decides in 1796 not to run, and a competition breaks out between his vice president, John Adams, and his uh, once secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson. And Adams wins that in a contested election that would begin to form a pattern in the, in the early uh, part of the country's history. 
Jefferson decides with Madison that they are going to weaponize political parties. They are going to use them as mass mobilizing institutions. That did not happen. The framers of the Constitution were quite uh, scornful of political parties as a source of threat. Remember what had happened in the state uh, conventions. And instead, here you've got Jefferson motivated by his loss in 1776, turning to political parties, really the first mass mobilizing political parties that we see. Um, and he wins a, a really a very decisive uh, election in 1800. It's known as the revolution. And so now we've got this, this tension where you've got a, a determined effort among those particularly who are scorned by the establishment to use mass mobilization as a way to challenge the establishment. And this tension back and forth between authority of the, particularly the federal government and its rules and procedures and the, the yearning for greater political equality. And I'm curious what lessons you take from this first, let's call it 50 years of American political history. And the reason I ask is, you know, I really enjoyed your discussion of how the Constitution was written. I, I teach constitutional law, and it's always sort of fun to hear the more critical version of that story. Um, you draw obviously heavily on folks like Michael Klarman um, in his book, the, the Framers Coup. He taught me constitutional history when I was in law school, so I'm sort of predisposed to, to like that approach. But it is quite a radical one, or at least it goes against the grain of our kind of common mythology. You know, as I read your description of Madison and the, the fast one, right, that he pulled over the, the, the country, it, it does strike me that there's a certain skepticism you have towards that elite control. But then when it gets to Jefferson and Jackson, you know, two figures who quite successfully, as you just said, weaponized political parties to sort of undermine certain political institutions, my sense is that you're more critical of them. So do you come down on one side of this or, or is it just always this difficult balance and it's kind of a fragile thing that has to be kind of carefully managed throughout each period of American history? I do think it's important to look at um, the framers of the Constitution as political actors uh, who are motivated by their own self-interest and their uh, political agendas. However, I do see Madison as a more complicated figure. I certainly agree with Klarman about the economic motives. And I think it's, it's quite clear reading the Constitution about the printing of money, the, the supremacy clause, and, and many others, as well as Madison's determined effort to, to dampen the degree and intensity of popular participation through things like the Electoral College and the state selection of U.S. senators. All of that was designed to prevent what was happening in the states. On the other hand, Madison, as he comes into the convention and is in Philadelphia in 1787, comes to appreciate the political constraints around the convention itself, that it would need to be putting forward a document that would face voters and state legislatures. And with that mindset and the pressure from the other delegates, Madison makes a series of compromises. And those compromises were to establish the basic rules of representative democracy in America, that there is election for House of Representatives, which Madison did not initially support. Uh, Madison also wanted the federal government to have a veto over state legislative decisions precisely to avoid what was happening in the 1780s. And, and he was defeated on that. So I see the outcome from the Constitutional Convention as really a contested one and an ambivalent one with multiple and competing potentialities. And so when you move into the uh, 1800 election and then up to uh, Jackson's uh, victories in 1828 and 32, you I see that playing out. You're seeing the pressure uh, to express and bring to life the promise of political equality, uh, while also the, the efforts to contain and direct and channel that political participation. And I think there is a tension there, a real tension that is bounded by a set of institutions and eventually practices. Eventually, I think it goes off the rails, and then this balancing of equality and authority is blown up. Um, as we move into the 20th century. One might think, or at least on first glance, it might seem plausible that to the extent that American politics has become 
more populist or small D democratic, however you want to call it throughout American history, that's due to the desires of the citizenry. And that's, I think, the old kind of traditional story. Uh, you know, that's why for, I think, a long time in American history, Jackson was lionized, right? Obviously, his legacy has become much more complicated as American history has become more sensitive to, you know, the, the rights of Native Americans, to the rights of uh, Black Americans, um, you know, as we've kind of extended the scope of, of who we care about in our polity to include women and other groups. Um, I do think those stories have, have come under greater scrutiny, but there's still a sense that the long march of American history is about this increasing desire on the part of citizens uh, and the part of people to be counted as citizens. But you make a very compelling argument that what drives this evolution, or at least an important driver of this evolution, is elite competition. And I think this is a, a really important concept. It's a really important concept in political science. I think it's just much less appreciated in kind of general political discourse than I think it should be. So I was hoping you could explain what is the idea of elite competition? And in particular, why in your telling is it responsible for so much of the political destabilization that we've seen throughout American history? And then of course, lately in American history. Yeah, sometimes destabilization could be a good thing for democracy. And, and so I, you know, I start the story really in terms of elite competition in 1796 this battle between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, this motivation for uh, winning elections, for controlling government policy is a primary mover. It doesn't determine what's going to go on, but it's a primary mover. It's why when Jackson decides because of his ambition to be president, to weaponize political parties, to mobilize this new uh, electorate, he's turning on the the values, the norms, and the expressed intent of the other framers of the Constitution. In my view, that's a great thing. Andrew Jackson, very complicated individual, um, you know, responsible for the murder of uh, many, many uh, Native Americans, you know, loosely tied to law and the Constitution. Uh, there was real horror when he was inaugurated in 1828. Nonetheless, you know, Jackson's use of the political parties and really, in some ways, a reinvention of mass politics creates a threefold increase in mass participation. So this drive for, for elite um, advancement, the ambition, the kind of um, rubbing up against the barriers to political advancement, that is an engine for the, for the progress in democracy. But as we move into the 20th century, you know, I think it, it goes the other way. And I think the key moment is during the progressive era where, you know, we've had a lot of scholarship around the progressive era. I think it's, you know, a remarkable moment when you see kind of a, a modernization push. We had, as Robert Wiebe put it, we had these separate islands of communities. And now we've got with industrialization and urbanization, we've got a dramatic shift. And part of that shift was in terms of the political process. Coming out of Wisconsin, uh, Robert La Follette was one of the leaders of this movement. And he, because he had been locked out by the, the political machine that had grown up and, and taken control of the party convention that Jackson had launched, La Follette was looking for a new platform to run on, something that would excite voters. And he tests a bunch of different ideas. He's really marketing. You know, if you're looking for kind of early messaging, this was LaFollette. He's going around to fairs and communities testing different messages. And he latches onto this idea of a direct primary, that the people, this mythic, you know, in my view, dangerous concept that the people will decide rather than the machine became the kind of launching pad for LaFollette to rise up, win office, governor in the U.S. Senate and presidential uh, candidate at one point. But this moment, a century ago, is also striking because LaFollette's idea of a direct primary, giving power to the people, is actually opposed. Now, some of the opponents were just the old machine and wanted to hold on to power. Fine, that, that's not that remarkable. It's to be expected. But the more interesting part were the local and state municipal reformers and the thought leaders Walter Lippmann and Robert Crowley. And their argument was that this idea of the people taking control 
was camouflaging what was really going on, that there was a surge of uh, demagogues and self-promoters, that the, the, the potential in all democracies for factions to um, push out efforts to build coalitions, that was the dominant feature of the primaries that, that La Follette was really succeeding in, in launching, certainly by the 1920s. But because of this backlash by progressives in particular, along with the, the party machine, it's pretty much stopped. And if you look in the, the 20s and 30s, 40s and 50s, 60s, um, the primaries were there, but they didn't control who was nominated. So you could have Hubert Humphrey nominated for president in 1968 without running in a single primary. And that is often talked about as a curse on Humphrey, but Humphrey was just doing what everyone else had done. It was the system because of the concern of Crowley and others that the direct primary was going to undermine our institutions and procedures of representative democracy. So I, I want to spend a bunch of time in our conversation talking about the primary, because that's obviously the kind of main contemporary entry point for, for the story that you tell. But I do have a follow-up question about the issue of elite competition. And my question there is, is elite competition a force that ebbs and flows throughout American politics? Uh, and if so, what are the drivers of increasing or decreasing elite competition? Or is it rather that there's always elite competition because there are always people who want to be elite want to be powerful, and there's kind of a limited number by definition of who can be in charge. And there are certain periods in American history where due to other factors, due to the underlying weaknesses of the political parties, soci sociological, economic factors, certain geniuses that come on the political scene for better or for worse, in which, you know, a, a Andrew Jackson can have an outsized impact, or a Bob LaFala can have an outsized impact. Um, or is it some combination of, the, of both of those? Yeah, I do see elite competition as a constant. You know, I don't, I don't know of a period where, other than with George Washington, where folks just sat down and said, yeah, you'd be president. There's always been a fight. But I do think there are some factors. Uh, one of those factors is related to the broad economic um, and social conditions. You know, these periods that we're looking at where there have been dramatic uh, political reforms, they have been associated with tremendous uh, turbulence and economic shifts. You know, the, the early part of, uh, of the 19th century, the turn of the century from the 19th to the 20th centuries. These were remarkable periods in which there was a tremendous amount of change in general. There was also a ruling clique that was blocking the advancement of kind of the newer political entrepreneurs. Andrew Jackson was the first president who had not come out of the kind of constitutional convention lineage. Sure, John Quincy Adams, not part of that, but he's the son of John Adams, so he gets a, a pass. Um, and there was you know, all sorts of shenanigans that had denied Jackson's advancement um, and contributed to this fiery ambition that he had. It's a similar story with, with Robert La Follette, who is blocked in Wisconsin by the machine uh, La Follette really comes from a very humble background. Um, and for him, political advancement was also economic advancement. It was the way in which he was going to be able to do what he cared to as a career, but also afford, you know, be able to support his family. So, yeah, I think there are the, and then there, are the, the third factor is elite competition, that there's a real battle and it's a battle, you know, over ambition, but also over big uh, policy issues. You know, Jackson was battling against what was seen as a kind of national government Hamiltonian push to modernize um, in the early 19th century. Uh, La Follette, you know, there was a big battle between the political machines on the one side with, with the economic trusts and then reformers who wanted to open up the economy, want to support entrepreneurs who wanted the political process to be more responsive. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 
and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So let's now turn to the question of, of direct primaries, which I think it's fair to say you have a skeptical uh, view of. And so I, I want to ask you just to kind of list and explain what, in your view, are the main pathologies of the political primary, right? You talk about how it encourages extremism, but you also actually uh, spend quite a bit of time um, explaining how they've, the primaries have historically been a, a driver of racial subordination in our society. And so I think just kind of putting on the table what are the problems with, with primaries would, would be useful in, in this conversation? This is a difficult conversation because people enter, you know, a book or a conversation with their own preconceived ideas. The preconceived idea on primaries is this is democratic. Full stop. That is a terrible, terrible misjustice to the concept of democracy. No other country uses primaries like we do. And those countries are all democratic. In my view, and I'm going to lay this out in a second, I think primaries are a source of political inequality, unresponsiveness, the opening of the door to, um, to demagogues and to uh, various forms of institutional racism. Now, let me start with the last point. When the primaries were stopped by reformers and others in the 1920s, the white segregationists in the South latched onto them. The South was the one area where primaries actually caught on and, and remained. They were known as white primaries, the white primary. And they were used because African-American men had gained the right to vote. And the white power structure was looking for a way to make sure that competition among white candidates wouldn't create a opening for black voters to mobilize behind one black candidate or a white candidate who was sympathetic to civil rights. So they used the primary as a way to weed out who would be the white candidate that, that white voters could get behind. It was a profoundly racist effort. It laid the ground, groundwork for Jim Crow and white segregation into the 1950s when there was a very important Supreme Court decision that began the process of unraveling it, but even that took longer than you might have hoped. Um, so there is this past. And so when I see Cory Booker after the 2020 uh, Democratic primary expressing the fury, he, sensed, he had a sense of bile just you know, overtaking him uh, because of the ways in which uh, the Black candidates, all quality candidates, had been moved out of the primary. And part of the reason is that Iowa and New Hampshire lead off the nomination process. Well, you know, these are white rural states, unlike really the base of the Democratic Party. That's not surprising. It's part of this lineage of racial animus, or in this case, I would say latent institutional disregard for the equal rights of African-Americans. So that's one factor. And we could go into more depth about that. The other factors have to do with this. When people say, hey, wait a second, primaries are the voice of the people. Why shouldn't the people choose who the nominee is? You can't trust the party bosses. Okay, well, who are the primary voters? In presidential elections, which is the big kind of political uh, festival, you know, where you have the height of participation, only a quarter or a third of Democrats and Republicans turn out and vote in uh, primaries. And when the Tea Party won, you know, races in the, in the 2010 election, you know, many of those races had turnouts of around 12 or 15% of Republicans. When AOC won her nomination against a very well-established Democrat who was rising the power structure, some thought would be, you know, a successor to Nancy Pelosi, turnout among Democrats was 12%. So, you know, is this, are these primary voters, you know, representing America? The other part is we know something about their ideology and they tend to be quite, quite conservative or right wing. And they tend to be more liberal than most Democrats. You know, I've been really struck looking at the 2010 
uh, election. And in January 2021, the Congress gets together to certify the vote for president. And it's, it's normally, of course, a, a pro forma event. We had 58% of Republicans in Congress voting to overthrow the election. Now, why does that happen? Well, for me, I look and say, okay, what is their motivation? What is going on in terms of the elite competition? And for those folks, if they defied Donald Trump in the primary, they were guaranteed, as we're seeing with Liz Cheney, that there would be a relatively small number of ideologically oriented voters who would turn out and quote unquote primary them the next time they were up for election and most caved. One of the political scientists that you cite several times is uh, E.E. Schatzschneider, who was kind of one of the, the great figures of mid 20th century political science. And it reminded me of a, a quote of his that I, I'm not sure is in your book, but seems very appropriate. It's from his 1942 struggle for party government, where he says democracy is not to be found in the parties, but between the parties. Is that a kind of fair encapsulation of your point in that this focus, almost obsessive focus on the sort of retail democracy of getting to vote in a primary is just really missing the point of what democracy, a thick conception of democracy really means? Yes, absolutely. The competition is between the parties and there's a long line of you know, thoughtful commentators who were thinking that way. Uh, Robert Crowley, I think is so important in this conversation, he talked about political parties as an integral part of our political representation system, its rules and procedures. Um, just as Madison had, had kind of worked out the tinkering of the constitution, Crowley was saying, okay, they didn't really think through the nomination process and that's where political parties are so important. If you look at you know, European democracy, um, they have far fewer elections and the elections are between the parties. That's where you fight it out. Now, one of the counters to this argument, and, and I take it seriously, is wait a second. In America, that means giving power to the party bosses. Usually there's an image of Tammany Hall that comes up, and this would be really unfair. We wouldn't have made progress on civil rights and other things. That's really not true. If you look at the Democratic Party in the 1960s, this is a decade before they adopt a direct primary. You see all the civil rights legislation on voting rights, fair housing, and more. You see Medicare and Medicaid being passed over the strenuous opposition of hospitals and doctors and insurers. You see the Democratic Party, which had been the party of the Deep South. It was inundated by white segregationists. And after a fiery 1964 convention in which the Mississippi uh, Reform Democrats were blocked from being seated, the party said, it stops here. And beginning forward, the 1968 convention, we will be sitting, you know, desegregated uh, delegations. We will not allow the racists to just seat um, these white segregationists. And it leads to the exodus of, you know, a good part of the, the white uh, power structure out of the Democratic Party. It's in 1969 and 70 when Humphrey has been defeated by Nixon and is, is really um, kind of on the lam. He's so depressed. He decides to do a favor for one of the co-chairs of his presidential campaign in 1968, a U.S. senator named Fred Harris. Fred Harris becomes the chair of the Democratic National Committee. He appoints George McGovern. Uh, to chair what was thought to be really just the, uh, another one of these pointless commissions. Well, it didn't happen this time. This commission really mattered. And we see uh, Harris and McGovern motivated fully by their intent to be a presidential candidate, to win the nomination and become president, who topple the political party system. And they are, they're the ones who install or reinstall the primaries, despite, you know, these 180 years of warnings about the dangers of simply opening the doors to the people. I, I wanted to follow up on your point that one of the kind of instinctual responses to this argument that primaries are less democratic than they seem is that, well, if the alternative is party bosses, I mean, maybe primaries are better. And, and I do think part of that 
instinct, and I will admit I share a little bit of it myself, though your, your book has you know, very much convinced me of your position, is that who are these party bosses? It's sort of not unclear how you become even a leader within the, let's say, Democratic or Republican Party, except by being elected. And so you know, these raises the question of if in a primary system you have the most partisan, the most ideological folks show up and that pushes the parties to an extreme, why don't you have the same thing if you vest the power within party professionals? Because presumably the people who are even more committed to the democratic policy agenda will become the party professionals in the quote unquote smoke-filled rooms. Now we know that that doesn't happen because exactly it's the primary system that in some sense breeds polarization. But I've always found that a kind of counterintuitive fact. And I'm curious if you have a sense of, of why it is that the party professionals are actually less polarized than the primary voters tend to be. The big theories in political science and economics about uh, democratic politics is the median voter theory. And the median voter theory is often associated, or at least talked about in terms of candidates and individuals. That's actually not the way Downs and others wrote about it. They talked about political parties. And the idea here is very simple, though it can be made very complicated. And of course, our colleagues in economics have done that to good effect often, which is that you've got a distribution of public opinion. In America, you know, prior to the recent era, public opinion tended to be bimodal, meaning that there were you know, folks on the conservative end, on the liberal end, and then you have find most people kind of congregating towards the middle. And, you know, frankly, in, in terms of policy issues, there's still quite a bit of that on, on abortion or health reform or other things. You still see that, you know, general kind of bell-shaped distribution of public opinion. Political parties are motivated to win elections. That's what it's about. The party activists, they're motivated to promote and, and, and advance an ideological agenda. They're very different. And we often see these kind of what would appear illogical steps by the party activists to nominate candidates who can't possibly win. We've seen that in Minnesota, for instance, in statewide elections. The Republican Party, controlled by very conservative activists, keep putting forward candidates who can't possibly win. They're too conservative or right wing for the electorate in Minnesota. In any case, my response to your question is that the incentives for party leaders are to win elections. To do that, they tend to converge to the midpoint of public opinion. Party activists, they're committed to their agendas, their ideological agendas. Winning is something they they're, they believe they can do, but it's not their number one priority. Their number one priority is kind of purism, to advance these beliefs that they feel very strongly about, whether it's kind of a pro-life agenda or it's an agenda about you know, racial equality. We're seeing, you know, I think, very different motivations. In Europe, which is, you know, we've got some very strong democracies over there in, in Britain and Germany and elsewhere, you see very few elections, you know, six, seven, eight over a number of years. And those elections are between the parties. The parties fight it out. There are factions and there's competition within the parties, but the parties put up candidates and they fight it out. In America, you know, we have tended to have battles within our political parties. And in my view, that has produced, you know, these candidates that are really out of touch with Americans. They're not responsive. They have allowed demagogues to come forward like Donald Trump, and there are more coming. Given that somewhat ominous prediction, uh, let, let's try to spend a few minutes you know, before we close our conversation talking about some of the, the solutions or, or the reforms or just some ways you can improve the system. And I first want to ask you about sort of this category of reforms that you consider but are pretty skeptical of, which, you know, you characterize as unrealistic and overambitious. I think one of the examples you you raise is, you know, various complicated schemes for rank choice voting, and some people are into quadratic voting. I feel like every month you get this more complicated system of, of how to apportion votes. Why are you skeptical of these sorts of proposals? And you know, what for you falls under the category of unrealistic reforms? I think the situation with our democracy is is quite uh, significant. I'm not a, you know, one of these kind of sky is falling uh, folks because I've been 
studying democracy. And I know in America, it's, it's, it's had a troubled past and we've moved forward. But I think one of the questions is what can we do? What can we actually do? For decades and decades, we've talked about getting rid of the electoral college. And let me deliver the news. It's not happening. And we could spend quite a bit of time walking through how difficult it is to, um, to pass a constitutional amendment or have a constitutional convention. And frankly, I think the people who raise it, you know, looking for something to talk about or sell textbooks or whatever, let's just put that aside as kind of fanciful. Then there are very serious proposals uh, like ranked choice voting. And I absolutely applaud and I'm counting on the urgent devotion of many Americans to reforming our democracy, to creating a vibrant democracy in which political elites follow the, the law and the rules and respect the constitution. But ranked choice voting is, in my view, profoundly flawed. The major flaw is it reinforces the political inequality that I've been talking about. I've talked about how power has shifted to a relatively small number of, of mostly ideologues. Uh, with ranked choice voting, what we see is the folks who turn out to cast multiple ballots for candidates. You know, in Minnesota, it's, you can vote for three candidates in Minneapolis and St. Paul. What we see is that the voters who are actually making those multiple selections tend to be white. They tend to be more affluent, better educated. So if you're concerned about the fact that African-Americans and other people of color and lower income Americans don't have the same voice and influence as those who are better established, then you want to be concerned about ranked choice voting. It is not a tool for political equality. Now, I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not on a, uh, an attack mode uh, on ranked choice voting. It just, it leaves me concerned. And if I'm going to be honest about, about this history of growing political equality in America and how our are really our abandonment of, of political procedures and institutions have opened the door to that, then I've got to say ranked choice voting is not the direction I would go in. I think what we need to do is first, we need to go back to Madison's warning about restraining elites. There's a kind of a mythology about the folks who are elites, governing elites, know better. And I just don't see a whole lot in our history particularly in the last few decades that would support that idea, including you know, the, the nomination and election and conduct of Donald Trump. I don't think there's anything about that. I think the fact that you had 58% of Republicans in January, 2021, voting to overturn a presidential election, is that kind of this noble, virtuous elite? No. So we need to look, how are we gonna check that? And I think one approach, and again, it's in this mindset of kind of, pragmatic, what can we do, is to increase the proportion of superdelegates in the Democratic Party and unpledged delegates in the Republican Party. This has been, you know, castigated by Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. They don't like it because they're trying to win the nomination. But I think for our country, we could use some peer review. And I think if we had had more unpledged delegates in the Republican Party, some of the candidates who were more uh, devoted to the Constitution, the rule of law, would have hung around because they knew that they had a chance. If they got to the convention, they could attract other delegates from other candidates, and then there would be this block of unpledged delegates who could come support them. As it was, the unpledged delegates were so small and insignificant, it was clear at a certain point that Trump would win, there was nothing could be done. So I think we need to take a look at, you know, we need to reinstall kind of peer review and give power to those party leaders who are thinking about how do we win the midpoint of public opinion? How do we kind of find majorities in the country rather than playing to the fringes? The second thing is we need to have a much more devoted attention to the administration of our elections. I think most Americans started to think about this in 2020 when they could see Donald Trump's efforts to overturn elections, and they could see Brad Raffensperger, who's the Secretary of State in Georgia, saying no to him. I'm not going to just find, you know, 11,000 votes uh, so you can win. That's not how it works. 
And that system has been neglected. We need to fortify it. We need to create a professional training program for those officials. At Minnesota, we've started really the first university-based certificate granting program to train election officials, frontline folks. This is not this is not for geeks like us. This is really for folks who are in the trenches. Um, that's growing, and and I would hope it would grow more and and crop up elsewhere in the country. The other thing is our voters are so tapped out. Uh, we were trying to count the number of offices that voters cast ballots for. We got over half a million municipal, local, state, federal offices that voters are asked to vote for. And you know, in a given year, it's like multiple elections because you've got a primary and a general election. Sometimes you've got multiple elections after that. Um, and they don't occur on the same date. They don't Voters don't go to the same place to cast the ballots in some, in some jurisdictions. So the problem with that is voters are literally drained. And it would be better, as Crowley argued, for there to be a smaller number of decisive elections in which voters could, could really devote their attention. So maybe rather than these low levels of turnout, we could have a fulsome turnout. We could get more of the country and, and, and kind of counteract the takeover by the ideologues. I think that's a, a lovely, hopeful place to end our discussion. The book is Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. It's really fantastic. And Larry, congratulations on writing it. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about it. It's great to be with you and Alan. Thanks to you and to Lawfare. I think this is really one of the more important uh, forums for serious conversations. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. On April 20th, we'll be hosting a joint live show with Georgetown Law about the implications of the Russian invasion on the international system. Please rate and review us whenever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. You can also buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.